Well, uh, on that note, hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, it's Toby Miller here, and I'm with my old friend, emphasis on old as in we've known one another a long time, Annabelle Srebrenny, and Annabelle, I'm going to put my computer here to block off a wee bit of the noise, but I hope that won't disrupt your utensils too much. We are in the caravan in uh, Clerkenwell, I guess, Exmouth Market, and one of the things we're here to talk about um, is the Iranian elections. Um, You are the author of two very well-known books on Iran. Uh, one about the revolution, if you like, the 79 revolution, mm-hmm. one about the so-called Green Revolution, or whatever term one uses. But we've just had an extraordinary presidential election there, and I know you were, I think you were in the studios of the World Service during it, BBC World Service, or after it, or listening to it. Well, through much of the week beforehand, although Before. I didn't actually sit with them that night, uh-huh. um, but I know people in the Persian service were putting in 10, 12 hour shifts. It was so exciting. So tell us why it's exciting. The Islamic Republic has claims its legitimacy from two things. One is the supreme jurist imposed by Khomeini after the revolution and now Khomeini, but it also has always taken its public, its political mandate from the mobilization of 78, 79 that got rid of the Shah. So it always has this sense of public mobilization Mm. as giving it some legitimacy. As a populist grassroots entity, Yes, but it looks like it's a top-down entity, but in fact it's not. Well, no, 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 I wouldn't say that. It is a top-down entity, but it likes to claim its legitimacy (laughs) from popular Uh participation. Uh That's the contradiction. So that means presidential elections are always important political moments. And, of course, in 2009, it was huge. So the result was declared within about three hours of the polls closing, even though many, many Iranians in diaspora vote. It clearly was a completely sham process and Ahmadinejad got back with a second term. So as the build-up came to this recent June 2013 election, there were lots of groups, including online, saying, one of them says in Farsi, Baguna, saying no, we're not going to go through this farce again. Another group put up a female cartoon character to vote for, although the way the constitution has been interpreted doesn't allow women to stand for the president. So lots of play with this whole thing. And many, many people just weren't taking it seriously. And I would say most of the people in diaspora were saying, we're not going to vote. And a large chunk of people inside Iran, we're not going to vote. You know, it was a fast last time. They're just trying to bring us back in. But the election period's very tight only three weeks. Um, 
by the beginning of the last week, there were only eight figures, which actually got whittled down to six, of whom the only cleric began to stand out as the most reasonable, the most tolerant. And people began to say, surprisingly, there was a movement, a swing of opinion behind this man. You know, the economy is on its knees. Sanctions are really, really biting. People can't get basic medicines. Um, inflation is sky high. Something has to go. And he was the only one of the six men left in the running that people began to say, actually, he's been the negotiator before in these nuclear issues. He was reasonable. He knows how to talk to the West. He's our best hope for making even incremental change, however much change it is needed, whether it's an inch or a mile, he's the only one who's going to do it. So slowly, there was an absolute mass of public opinion and people were talking to people in diaspora, if you're not voting, can I use, use your vote to vote for the person I want? There As was a proxy. lot of horse trading. So suddenly, from being a really flat election, don't vote, it doesn't matter, it became a really important event. And then, of course, the moment came when the polls closed, the votes are in, and then people started to get really antsy. What's the result? What's the result? To which people said, slow down, calm down, Because this time we're actually going to count. <laughs> exactly. And then there are lots of photos on Facebook and everywhere else saying, thank you for counting my vote. So it was actually a proper election. And surprisingly, in the first round, because it can go to a runoff, but in the first round he got over the magical 50%. Now... I think it's fair to say that Ahmadinejad is the mo was the most demonic figure in in the Western bourgeois media of the post Khomeini period. Yes, I can't think of anybody, including Saddam Hussein, who was so pilloried, so caricatured, so denounced on so regular a basis from so many different perspectives. <laughs> What's your take on the old regime of him? Of him? Of Ahmadinejad. Oh, that's a really interesting and difficult question. Um, he changed from his first period to the, to the second period. Um, many people are beginning to say he did actually begin to stand up in important ways to the supreme leader. So he, began, he begins to say, I am the elected person and I am you know, going to fight. So there's a real internal politics. He, one of... Women have been the major players in the Iranian civil society from the moment of the revolution on. He but began, back to 79, back to, back to 79, 79, women were... He began to movers. say, you know, women are saying we want to go and watch football matches. He said, yes, that's okay. The Supreme Leader said no. Many instances of a real politics. At the same time, he himself, I think, is just a bit of a noodle. Um, you know, <laughs> he had, you know, a direct line to the Almighty. You know, he didn't need the Supreme Leader. Um, you know, he talked about the return of the occulted Shiite um, cl 
cleric. Um, I didn't like the know. chap's clothing, personally, if we can get to deeper questions. No, but terrible no, clothing style, <laughs> and of course, completely bonkers about Holocaust. I mean, if anybody knows yeah. anything about Iran, it is and remains the country in the Middle East that has a Jewish community. Now, of course, it's dwindled. But, but it's the it's biggest outside there. Israel, isn't it? I think in the region. In the oh, yes. region. There yeah, are more Jewish, the only there are real community. folks in Iran than anywhere else in the region, in the yes. region apart from Israel. Yes. And yet, he was a Holocaust denier. I don't think yes. one can get around it. Yes. So, of course, you know, very hard for Iranians, anyone outside and of a global community to get past that utterly ridiculous and reprehensible yeah. rhetoric. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where in his case, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism really were connected. They, it felt as though they were deeply connected in him to an outsider because of this Holocaust denial. Well, that's hard to know. Um, I mean, you know, he's a thoroughly unlikable character altogether right. and terrible um, fashion style. <laughs> Because you know, I, mean, I, I like to get at the more profound questions immediately. No, I agree, and and for for listeners, Toby is wearing a very fetching Breton striped sweater with blue and grey with buttons on the shoulder. <laughs> if he were here, Noel Cobb would sing, "Matalo, Matalo, where you go, my heart goes with you." <laughs> Ahmadinejad, also homophobic up the wazoo, right? Oh, yes. You know, there is no AIDS in Iran. Remember that one? Well, because, there's but not, not only... Of course, there can't be AIDS in Iran because there are no homosexuals in Iran. So, you know, the LGBT community around the world of Iranians. So here we are, here we are, here we are, you know. Yeah. Of course, all this rhetoric triggers responses. So that's the other interesting thing about Iran. Yeah. Is it's really political. I would say the last 34 years, five years, from the revolution. Yeah. It is political in a way, again, that I think many parts of the Arab world simply aren't. And other parts of the of the Middle East, the Arab world, have had to claim their politics only on the well, street. I Whereas Iran has been arguing with each you know, I don't find Britain to be a very political society. Oh, no, it isn't. Uh, it's it completely isn't. lacking. Heavens. Hello. Yeah. I think that's you. Okay. The little cheese plate, thank you. And Annabelle, delicious please, food just arriving. Please feel free to have any. <laughs> I've got, of, I've got uh, oh, you're, you're okay. Right. Please feel free to have any of the cheese plate you want. Uh, let me get this a little bit away from you to give you some more space. We've got less background noise now, but I just sometimes use this computer to block out some of that. I was very interested in what you say about the w women. And, uh, no, no, please. If you want to take it some direction, let's. let's no, I was just going to say, let's go back to why there's no politics. You know, oh, in no, Britain. Yes. I mean, it's an. Um, you know, you would have thought if the Labour Party cannot capitalise on Tory twits and austerity politics, then the Labour Party really has no future. Yeah. But even yeah. beyond that, there are fragmentary attempts to pull people together, including the People's Assembly. But I think the main issue is we're waiting for leaders somehow. We're waiting oh, for some structure, some organisation. 
Well, I think there's nobody spectacular in British politics. Absolutely no one. I loathed Blair, but he was a charismatic subject. Thatcher also a charismatic subject. Yep. There is no such person, and not that I'm saying everyone needs a leader, but it is a quasi-presidential system here, for all that it might say otherwise, and there are such people. Uh, so I think that's one factor. I wonder also if there isn't such a profound separation regionally now, which was always there in this country, as you know, that this doesn't have an effect. In other words, people down south, where we are now, people in London, can have it bad, but my God, it's nothing compared to the rest of the country. And this is where a lot of the spectacle, the performance culture, the lowercase p politics, and the media are not only located, they're completely focused. Yes. In the United States, however much one might think otherwise, the media are very interested in lots of places outside D.C. They're very interested in big cities. D.C.'s tiny. They're very interested in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York and to a lesser extent Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. But they're very, you know, other places really matter. The Midwest is the real heart of a country. Here, no one gives a flying fuck yeah. about anywhere in Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cornwall, you name it. So I do think, and, and, and the point of that being that unlike in many other countries, this is a country where only one city is doing well. Yes. There's lots of poverty yes. here, but there are lots of opportunities here and there's lots of work. Oh, I mean, we've, you know, we've got £35 million houses in London, whereas Stoke-on-Trent is actually offering houses at £1 for people living in the area to do up. I mean, that's the extent of the rift. Right. Absolutely. Right. And of course, what's happening in London, because the market, the housing market, is so absolutely bonkers, people are cashing in and moving out, but nobody can afford to come in. So anybody who any anybody in the service industry any nurses any teachers policemen are moving further and further out no. and coming in and even academics we've just appointed academics at SOAS school, school of Oriental and African Studies which is part of London University they're getting now actually in quotes a reasonable academic salary it hardly copes with London rental prices no so it's both the working class and the middle class has to travel in to service the bourgeoisie yeah the big bourgeoisie basically yeah. the serious bourgeoisie yeah, yeah. so yeah I mean I, I mean you are looking rather bourgeois if I may <laughs> I just I just serenaded myself as a sailor boy come on I'm ready to do due diligence to the master of the Queen's Navy you know yes no but I want to recapture some of the good historical parts of the big of the bourgeoisie, the big bourgeoisie of a problem, not well, a lot of general bourgeoisie. I think the big another problem here is is genuinely finance capital. When you have David Cameron, the Prime Minister here, banging on at the Group of Eight last week or the week before in in Askillen about the need to close down tax havens, I'm very sorry. The world's biggest tax haven, historically, geographically, and financially, is the city of fucking London. Well, but it's also, I mean, I think of it a bit like trying to stop the growth of opium in Afghanistan, um, or even cocaine in, in Colombia. Well, that's a good idea in principle, but if loads of people are making a living out of this, then there also has to be a sensible alternative. So I don't see how you can just close down the Turks and Caicos 
islands because how else are people going to make a living? Of course, it's absurd. But I do think that finance capital is part of it. There's so much money swirling around here in London. Outside the United States, it is the world financial centre for sure. capitalism. There's sure. just nothing to even to begin to rival it. And there are, obviously, vast amounts of opportunities because of the multiplier effects of all that capital. They may not pay taxes, but they buy things and they hire people and they want things. Oh, yes. And unlike the Turks and Caicos Islands, they actually live here because they can get prostitutes and their children won't be kidnapped and their wives can buy expensive baubles. Uh, Sorry to be so reductionist, but we well, both know that's yes, part I of Yes, I mean, that, it is. that is part of it, but also we, we are learning more and more just recently of how much international money is being washed through London, right. how many units are bought up through Russian, Chinese, Indian and other kinds of capital and are sitting em empty. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic of, again, the London housing market. But, but, and, and the danger no. of all of this is you end up with really kind of isolationist, um, chauvinistic ideas of the economy. You know, you know, want to prevent capital coming in or you want to prevent tax havens outside. And actually, you know, I'm a globalizer, I'm a transnationalist, I'm an internationalist. But the way all of this has been unregulated really creates profound local programs at, in both places. Absolutely. And I think Senders and receivers. In terms of the depoliticization of British life, I think part of the problem is that it's been so cleverly compartmentalized within neoliberal ideology of individualism. So people here are a bit like people in LA in the sense of, I've come here for opportunity. This is where I can do this, and I can be that, and I'm the master of my destiny. A very un-British way of thinking. When you and I were children, nobody thought like that. They thought collectively. Well, where... I, I mean, broadly, yes, but where I think one does see a politics in Britain is, of course, around various elements of what remains of public service, particularly the health service. So loads of people across the classes are involved in protecting the Whittington Hospital or Charing yeah. Cross yeah. Hospital, you know, all no, of that's that. that's true. But of course, we're fighting local battles. It hasn't come together in any cohesive way to preserve the NHS. People did fight also when the government at various points, and that includes Labour, talked about privatising the Royal Mail. And people said, no, we like it, and it does lots of things, and don't that will close down the local rural post office. We don't want that. And I'm interested to see if the next time the BBC's licence fee comes up for renewal, what kind of struggle there's going to be, in a sense, to support the BBC. Because I was just at the IAMCR conference, if you don't mind a plug, International Association for Media and Communications Research. Annabelle, ex-president. Ex-president, held in Dublin. And, of course, there were lots of Greek academics and researchers present. Who'd are, swum there, no doubt. Well, who'd swum there, indeed, because they can't afford the fare, but who are apoplectic at the closing down of the Greek public service broadcaster saying, although it wasn't wonderful, it is something, it is a structure that unites through broadcasting the Greek people, allows for debate, so you hear the other side of, you know, the arguments, and what you have instead is a yeah. completely fragmenting media environment. Yeah. Really, really frightening. Well, yeah. I guess when I think about 
when I lived here when I was 11, 12, and every week almost it seemed, Grosvenor Square, which is where the US Embassy is, mm -hmm. had massive demonstrations. Yep. If Mick Jagger didn't address one, his spirit was certainly there. Street Fighting Man, wonderful yep. anthemic yep. song of those days before the Stones just became Tories and Twits and Twats, was very much about possibilities of that resistance to US imperialism and British complicity in US imperialism. And now, uh, what do we have? 70-year-old men with unfortunate uh, hairdos prancing around at the Glastonbury Rock Festival behaving like two-year-olds with absolutely no politics other than how much they have to pay the helicopter driver who pilots them onto the field where they disport themselves. Oh, and refusing to allow the BBC to cover their performance live, I presume to do with, you know, large fat envelopes of large amounts of money in them. On the other hand, I think the Jerpies are continue to rock the rock world. I mean, Bruce Springsteen is having fabulous concerts. I was just at Leonard Cohen at the O2. Oh, 20,000 jerpies on their feet singing along with him. Um, well, yeah. fair enough. And I mean, I think... Um, and by the way, I was in Grosvenor Square in 68 and... Um, were you? Yeah. I remember police on horses uh, coming at us, you know, some of the most violent moments of my political life, actually. Um, no. But also incredibly exhilarating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Am I right in thinking, Annabelle, that you were in Iran during the revolution, or when the revolution struck, or happened, or whatever? How would you compare that to being in Grosvenor Square as, I guess, an undergrad student or schoolgirl protesting? They're both real in the sense that they're both material you're amongst other people I really believe in somatic solidarity that power of being in the crowd with people who think alike um, Grosvenor Square were we ever going to topple the American Empire clearly not <laughs> right whereas the dynamics of the revolution in Iran perhaps like some of these incredibly exhilarating moments in Turkey and Brazil of real people power on the street where it hasn't been. In Iran there was a real sense of something is going to happen. Um, I've argued, other people have argued, that it was in some ways a very negative moment in 79 that people came together because they knew what they were against. That was against the Shah and his kind of role as a semi-imperial power in the region, as an American uh, puppet in the region. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a sense that the Shah's regime was going to topple and that there would be some kind of light, although we didn't know it was all going to come from heaven rather than from <laughs> ourselves. You know, we, didn't, <laughs> we couldn't anticipate that. Uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was really powerful, real politics. Yeah. Um, now, a quick, I want to go back in a moment to this issue of gender and the revolution, if we could. But before mm -hmm. we do that, something that comes to mind when you, you mention the possibilities. I think I'm right in saying that in the latest election, the only British media allowed in were Channel 4, mm -hmm. courtesy Jon Snow. Yep who, for those from outside Britain, is, I suppose, the most famous anchor in British television, certainly of the contemporary moment. John, yes, anchor, yes. John Simpson would vie for most famous kind journalist. of accolade. Most famous but, journalist, but as yes. A, as an anchor, mm -hmm. Snow. Yep. And Snow, I think of as probably a better journalist, actually. Mm -hmm. um, 
why did Snow get in and why were other news agencies not allowed in? Why, why would the Iranians say okay to Channel 4 and not to the BBC? Uh, Snow is an Iranophile. He was in Iran in 79. He's covered it well since. In 2009, he was there and Lindsay Hilson, also of Channel 4. I don't know if Lindsay tried to get a visa this time and was denied. Channel 4 has given very solid, straight-up coverage. But the other point is that I'm just finishing a book on this subject. The role of the BBC Persian services over the last, well, actually since the Second World War, as complicit and squeezed between Britain and Iranian diplomatic relations. So the World Service is, of course, fascinating. Um, it's a service that at some point has over 40 languages. It's now down to 28. In the beginning, it brought in people with languages, but they translated from a central news production office within the World Service. Now, there's not only radio, there's Arabic and Persian television showing, again, the importance of the region for British diplomacy. But the people working in the Persian service are quite young, most of them even early 40s, so an old guard has been moved on, many brought in directly from Tehran, and they produce absolutely everything themselves. There's no central oversight. And because many of them have been journalists, bloggers, even arrested and imprisoned in Iran, they have a very critical position, although they're always trying to get um, people from the Islamic Republic, politicians, commentators, to come and talk to them. The Islamic Republic under Ahmadinejad as president blocked anybody from dealing with the Persian service, so it's always been seen as a voice of the British in the way that Channel 4 hasn't. Um, I think they did a tremendous job, the Persian service, in covering this election. And it's also interesting to see, as BBC News Gathering has moved to a swanky new building north of Oxford Circus in London, how the World Services are becoming better connected to general news gathering. So they have something now called bilingual newscasters, people who can broadcast in Arabic or Persian or Hindi and in English. And so the World Services are getting better integrated into global news, and I hope eventually we'll see that actually on BBC Domestic, but that hasn't quite happened yet. Right? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. let's get mm -hmm. back to this gender issue that I wanted to explore mm -hmm. earlier, which you mentioned. It's very interesting. Again, I'm adopting the voice that might be my voice that assumes that just as feminism is a far from incomplete, uh, sorry, a far from complete project here, so it's an even further from complete project in Iran, and that women's voices have been suppressed. But I think you were telling us that, in fact, women's voices have been the key revolutionary voices from the get-go. 
Thank you. I mean, you could, you know, one could argue, and let's just stay with this sort of recent period, so the period mm -hmm. under Ahmadinejad, so that's the last eight years. Any kind of critical voice, and even voices that didn't think themselves to be critical, but were considered to be that by Ahmadinejad, have had difficulty. So before Ahmadinejad, under the period of Khatami, the so-called reformist president, there was a growing student movement and lots of debate and lots of politicization of the universities. There was a very strong labor movement um, and indeed one of the major union organizers of the bus driver strike who was imprisoned under Ahmadinejad was picked up by Amnesty as a prisoner of conscience. And then you've had the women's movement arguing about all sorts of things from as perhaps for us silly issues like getting into a football stadium to watch the match, although I as an Arsenal supporter quite understand that demand. Toby rolls his eyes. God, this is a, yeah. North London Jewish girl. <laughs> Not much you can do with them, I find. <laughs> so they, they, can time, yeah. they can spend all this time in Iran, but it doesn't really change No, the indeed. It's no, I support the only properly Arab team in the competition, Fulham. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> although Arsenal has Emirates Stadium. Oh, sorry, what was I saying? Yes. <laughs> quite... Um, you know, so the women's movement has argued things like, you know, we want to get into the football stadium to um, we need equal rights of divorce, we need equal rights in the law, law process, we want women judges, etc, etc, etc. And actually, on the ground in Iran, the reality is that 60 plus percent of university students are women. Right? Um, women are driving taxis, women are doing all sorts of things. Yeah. So it's very hard to keep Iranian women quiet. You know? <laughs> I and found, I found mm -hmm. that wherever I've travelled actually. Women Iran are very, you know, it's part of my project as you know, to try to keep you guys under control. Uh, you yes. keep bobbing up. <laughs> no, it's terrible, isn't it? doesn't it? matter how I dress. Awful. No. <laughs> you know, I can wear my little Matalo <laughs> outfit or I can do my Ahmadinejad, my Mises, but no, you guys no, just won't be we just down. keep on chucking. So, you know, Iranian like, women like women ocean, really. everywhere else are, you know, full, <laughs> full speed ahead. Um, and indeed, just recently, there are some um, feminist Islamic scholars beginning to say, actually, if you read the very first constitution after the, the Republic, it can be read as allowing women to stand for president. That actually has been a kind of interpretation imposed upon the process. So I think that will be one argument that will be taken forward. Yeah? Very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, I found quite confronting the other week, we bumped into one another, I saw you in a bar. Um, you were reading a novel, I think. I was reading. You were reading something, you know, sipping a cup of tea, no doubt. But I saw you in a bar during the International Communication Association and we had a little gossip. Oh, sorry, we had an important intellectual exchange of views. And All the time, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but. In that exchange, one of the things that I was struck by was the way in which, because of the very boring part of London we were in, Edge, the part, particular part of Edgware Road, there wasn't much going on except for some really quite good Arabic coffee shops, mm -hmm. where I spent a bit of time. Mm -hmm. And because of the presence of a lot of people in the hijab and so on in that area, there was a very negative reaction from some extremely nice, very smart, agile, interesting white American feminists of my you know, background, of my, my uh, 
of my um, acquaintance. Thank you, God, for word of God. Senior moment of my acquaintance. Really shocked because you know they live in wherever they live in the US and they just don't see this. There are, for those who don't know this, there are actually millions of Muslims in the United States, but I think most of them are African American and most of them are not dressed in these ways. The vast majority of the women. But here it does go on. And it made me think about a time, and correct me if I've got this wrong, when you sent out an email to a lot of people, myself included, saying, I'm organizing like a study tour of Iran. Oh, yeah. And this is when it is. And come if you can. You're very welcome. We'll have a great time. We can do anything you want. If you're a woman, you, you will have to wear a scarf in public. Yep. But other than that, everything's cool. So just to share this with you. And I wanted to ask you about that about the sense of a state-required uniform, which we all have. We're all wearing, to a lesser extent, uniforms required by the state every day. But what does that mean to you as a woman in the context of feminism? Well, just to go back to your anecdote, I yeah. thought that was the most wonderful educative moment yeah. when kind of naive America was confronted with something of the Middle East in London. And oh my goodness, people actually dress like that. Yeah. And of course, here it's interesting because you can say, well, people. I, you see it on the bus every day. It's just completely awkward. Yes, but also here, in a sense, women who wanted to could take that off. Um, in many of my flights into Iran, I've had to put covering on before I land, and in many flights out of Iran, women on the plane have very ostentatiously, with lots of gasps and titters, taken off their scarves. Hallelujah, we can be uncovered. I have had lots of arguments with my feminist friends who say they would not come to Iran because of it. And I say, you're missing a moment of cultural encounter. You're missing a moment to dialogue with Iranian women and understand the pressures that they are under. And I would also say that in comparison to all the things that women have to contend with in Iran, that's actually the least of their worries. Right? Would many women inside Iran happily take off their coverings? Absolutely. Again, I've come into a household with Iranians, we've all gone, <sighs> taken that covering <laughs> off and watched, um, God, I'm blocking the California beach bum surfing program on television. I'm blocking the title. You're talking about the entire body of Los Angeles critical television well, it, work it's all, for the last yes. 50 years. Yeah, right. But you know, so, you know. Californication? No, even earlier. I'm just, I'm just completely blocking it with Pamela Anderson. Oh, Baywatch. Baywatch. Yes. By the way, you just missed, unfortunately, a wonderful I, gesture yes. that Annabelle made and Pamela then Anderson made again. With her big <laughs> it was fantastic. It involved both hands engaging in some kind of curvature, and it occurred three times. I can't even begin to replicate it. And a and long way from my it. own puny um, constructions. Well, yes. I think Pamela has had some. I think the word is work. Another word would be help. Well, yes. So, but in any event, <laughs> I mean, you know, so I would say, I think Western academe and Western feminism have been obsessed with the veil yeah. and have taken it as a very crude and simplistic marker of women's oppression. Yeah. Right? Yes, 
women in other parts of the world will fight against this, but there are so many other more significant fights, like, you know, equality under the law, getting into the labour market, equality in education. Um, that, you know, it's, it's a Western obsession with the yeah. way we dress and our individualism, rather than the significant politics on the ground well, in that part of the world. And also a denial of other kinds of law. Think of the yeah, law sure. that says that you're supposed to be slim, slender-hipped mm. uh, with enormous breasts, mm. um, as per Pamela Anderson, and for the vast majority of women that is anatomically impossible, other than through surgery. But, uh, now, it's not the state law that requires this, but it's L-O-R-E, not L-A-W, oh, of a, a very powerful kind. It reminds me of a wonderful piece of writing by Fatima Mernissi, uh, the Moroccan sociologist, cultural critic, who arrives in New York for a conference and roams around a department store and is asked by one of the saleswomen, what size are you? And Mernissi bursts into laughter and says, well, with my tailor, when I'm fat, he makes me fat clothes, and when I thin, he makes me thin clothes, you know. And, you know, what size are you? This is a complete Western obsession. Yeah. But absolutely, we don't go to Indian women, oh, take off your saris, or British women, take off your skinny jeans. Thank God the world remains a little bit diverse, although the pressures toward homogeneity are increasing all the time. And so, the, you know, at some level, the veil is part of that, as Greek, you know, elderly Greek women often cover themselves, as Jewish women wear wigs when they marry, you know, observant Jewish women. So, you know, there is a lot of culture and law, as you say, in clothing. And at some level, the veil is part of that process. Yeah. 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 So, I wondered if what we could do is take a small diversion and then return to the incoming administration in Iran. The small diversion would be to ask you a bit about your own work, if that's okay. Okay. Um, and in particular, um, well, you, there may be different things you want to focus on, but uh, your your two books on Iran, maybe 15 years apart, the books, have I got that roughly right? Even 20 years. Maybe 20 years. Both landmark texts, uh, one became a classic, uh, and one is becoming a classic, I would say. For people who don't know this literature because they might be in different parts of the world, mm -hmm. can you run us through a little bit of what you were getting at in those volumes? There's the, sure. is it what, mm -hmm. big, big media, small revolution, small revolution, <laughs> yeah. big media? I get, it know, became big, an big Pamela Anderson, yes, small exactly. day watch. Small me. Yes. <laughs> I didn't mean, you said that. <laughs> Listeners, uh, yes. she's drinking water, I'm drinking tea, that's all I want noted. Um, let me just go back to one other thing that yeah. you mentioned, the yeah. email inviting people oh, to yes. travel. Yeah. We had gone quite far down the road of planning that when the second 2003 war with Iraq broke. And 
talking to people, although it was a long way from Iran, you know, these are two different countries and, you know, they share a border, but, you know, these are big territories. Everybody felt it was an inappropriate moment to travel, which was a great pity. So I still have Thank that in much. mind oh, good. as being kind of informal um, yeah. travel organizer, um, because I would love to show Iran to many people, including you. I've talked yeah. about it so much. It would be great to be yeah. there. No, so my, my work... I, my PhD is out of Colombia, and I did the classic, perhaps unforgivable mistake in many ways, but that made my academic career. I went to Iran without having written a dissertation. If I'd stayed in New York, I would have written something eminently forgettable about Habermas. It would have joined, you know, the gazillion works on, no, we can't reinterpret Habermas, but let's try. But instead, I went, I, I went to Iran in a very unfeminist move, chasing, returning to the man who I married en route, who is an Iranian, remains an Iranian, although we know, are no longer together, but we managed 28 years, I think, together. So I'm in Iran. I am the only foreigner working in a small research unit which does focus on communications. And because I'm the only foreigner, I share my office with all sorts of visiting academics and intellectuals who speak English. So it was my great good fortune to get to know an, a huge number of these passing uh, academics. And we're living in North Tehran and beginning to see something bubbling. So I end up writing in, in this almost inevitable way when you are at a, a pivotal moment in a nation's history, an ethnography, you know, a grounded experiential book about the dynamics of political mobilization using what were then new media technologies in inverted commas, the well-known leaflet used, produce, mass produced by the Xerox machine and cassette tapes. And we probably all remember, if you're old enough to remember, you know, that double cassette system where you could borrow a cassette from somebody and instantly copy it. So that's what happened. Khomeini moves to Paris, his sermons and critiques of Western capitalism and, and Pahlavi domination are passed down telephone lines to cassettes, they're multiplied and woof, Khomeini's voice is everywhere. So simply by being there and watching and seeing this process unfold, that became my first book which is called Small Media, <laughs> Big Revolution, which has of course allowed me, ever, well since probably 2011 and the Arab Spring, Every time people talk about, oh, can you, oh, new media, this is very new, social media creating political change, I kind of say, well, Hang on got the t-shirt, I wrote about <laughs> this, you know, 20 odd years ago. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, is a, it is a great book. Um, now, fast forward to when you are writing about the newer rather than the middle-aged media, mm -hmm. and what goes on under Ahmadinejad, as an act, as acts of resistance, 
Well, I've continued to write about Iranian media in various ways, both the state-run media and alternative media, you know, over the last 30 years, and about women and about diasporas. Um, I've collaborated very well with an Iranian, Ghulam Qiyabani, my good friend and colleague. And we were writing about the mass move by young Iranians into digital technologies. Um, I don't believe in cultural essentialism, but it has been really interesting to watch young Iranians pick up the digital and run with it in incredibly creative ways. At some point, of course, spaces for action that weren't, that couldn't be materialized in the real world. It was hard to organize even a room to discuss something in a university, hard to have a demonstration, hard to organize a protest or a strike. So, of course, the digital is a good space for people to begin to talk and dialogue. So, at some point, Persian was, in the early noughties, one of the, let's say, top five languages on the internet. And there were a huge number of people, both as individual bloggers, but also setting up kind of political blogs, writing and dialoguing and putting out their material on the Iranian internet. And Iran, with its pretensions of being a highly developed society, always comparing itself to Singapore infrastructure, Canadian infrastructure, you know, the infrastructure wasn't bad, so it allowed for this development to happen. Of course, you then get to a point, which is the second term of Ahmadinejad, when he realizes how political and how dynamic this whole field is, and bloggers begin to be arrested journals and editors were having a hard time in producing real copy, hard copy, they gravitated to the net, they are closed down. And so everything we'd written was about the nature of politics online. And then we got to 2009 and the election and the Green Movement and we thought, oh my God, everything we've written is now history. You know, here is a new dynamic back on the streets with new kind of constituencies involved. And then rewrote, of course, as one does, the introduction and the last part of the book to say, to actually understand the Green Movement, you should have read everything else in the book. Mm. Sure. No, um, and one of the things that's interesting about your work, both those books but the many things in between since, is that you seek and manage to combine approaches that are often kept rather separate in academia. Political economy, cultural imperialism, ethnography from below, technological significance, and so on. But also the politics of the personal, which I know has become perhaps more important for you over time without other things losing their importance, right? I've been very interested in the reasons why people invest in globalization or the experience of globalization and so on. Yeah? Is that fair to say? Oh, yes. Um, I'm crazy enough to have published an article called Globalization and Me, where I start off kind of jokingly saying, you know, how, how is this possible? But I'm very interested in personal narratives, um, partly because my own has been unplanned and interesting. I'm the child of uh, European Jewish refugees to Britain. I end up marrying an Iranian Shiite. You know, how is that possible? 
Um, and it was, if it was difficult in the mid-70s, I think sadly in 2013, it's even more difficult if we thought there was a moment of international engagement through personal narratives and that the world would come to understand, we'd all come to understand each other better through these kind of mixed relationships. Actually, I think the global political dynamics make some of these encounters even harder to imagine than 40 years ago. I mean, in some ways, one has to live long enough to see both regression as well as sort of new hope for change in the world. Well, this is partly a story about the absence of a Cold War, I think. For all the horrors of the Cold War and the oppression that people suffered on all sides, it did create a certain balance whereby if you were operating on the, either at the core or the periphery, but somewhere off to the side of the Cold War's binarism, then there were spaces of possibility. And really, other kinds of conflicts have been ramped up in the post-Cold War era. Oh, no, of course. And, and, and even more evidently, post-9-11, you know, Islam as the West's major enemy has just been a phantasm of our own projections. Yeah. And, you know, the desperate attempt by the many Muslim communities in Britain to say, you know, here we are, we've been living amongst you for a long time and, you know, you don't notice us most of the time. Occasionally our covered women, but, yeah, Not this myself. is a particular brand well, of, you I'm know, staggered. violence it's Islam. It's still the case, whenever there is some violence involving Islam in Britain, there is a denunciation of Islamic leaders for failing to denounce the violence yes. properly. Before they've even been asked to speak, as far as I can tell, they denounced for failing to denounce. Well, but also, you know, there are plenty of murders committed by white Christian men, and who are the communities that should be done? Yeah, exactly. Tommy points to himself. You know, indeed, indeed. So that elision between our political phantasms yeah. and yeah. local people is just quite extraordinary. But the thing yeah. about the personal politics... Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Oh, I'd just like to come back to the other question yeah. that you asked me, which is about utilising different theoretical positions, if you like, in one's mm. academic work. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I would say, for me, one of the tragedies of the field that we both find ourselves working in, sort of media cultural studies, that already siphons off all sorts of cultural issues away from sociology or anthropology or international relations or politics or indeed economics. Mm. And then within that field, as academe becomes more and more bureaucratized and professionalized quotes in a very narrow manner, we have silos within those fields of people who never talk to each other. Um, and many of our academic associations when they meet, people only sign up to political communication and have no idea what someone in gender thinks about. So we've created these str academic straitjackets, yet the world continues with its complexity. So I've always been a kind of theoretical anarchist in some ways, drawing from whatever literature seem appropriate, seem appropriate to the topic of Do you find that that's a little easier to do in area studies than in media and cultural studies, or is it a wash? Is it the same? Well, 
I think academe is not without its own fads and trends. Surely not. Uh, <laughs> you just told us you built a career based on the fact that you ran after some bloke. <laughs> I said that, she didn't say it. Well, she did say that. But anyway, yeah. Well, I said I came to Iran through a person. Yes. <laughs> not, I, I didn't know Iran before I knew the person. Yeah, yeah that, that's my point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so we're terribly parts. faddish and yeah. trendish. Yeah. Um, the dilemma with area studies, of course, is the opposite. You know, you have very rich, individually, individual, contextualized, historically coherent case studies, but how can we extrapolate from one place mm. to another? How mm. do we compare? Um, so I think at the moment, I'm most interested in that kind of the theoretical tension between trying to come up with some forms of macro theory that help us understand the world as it, as it mm. is, mm. but also the realization that the best kind of theory actually comes from really grounded particular studies in particular places mm. and that there's always a gap between the two. Getting on to this personal stuff too, one of the things I've been noticing in the last few years is that in amongst the occasional attempts... 60? Pardon? How long do we need? Just... We've got about it's five minutes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We've got enough time for another five yeah. minutes or so. In amongst the occasional attempts to humanize the Arab world and Iran over the last few years, stuttering, helpless, monolingual as these efforts are. Mm. There is an attempt to psychologize the Arab street, which is to say the Arab male, and I don't know how much this gets applied to Iranians, and to say some of this is about a feeling of emasculation, that some of the supposed binarism that is generated between the West and Islam, which of course have been intercalculated since Islam began, but let's forget about that, some of this is about the feeling of emasculation and lack of significance for hypermasculine men, or hitherto hypermasculine men in the Islamic world, who, confronted with the idea that all the money and the military power and the science, the math, the economy is in the hands of the other, uh, regard this as an affront to their manhood and wish to strike back against it. And this is uh, mm. done by psychologists, communications people, mm -hmm. political scientists. Mm -hmm. It's meant, I think, to be empathetic and sensible. I, of course, think it's utterly mad at, at one level, in the sense that those things are the things that make white men in the West mad and angry. Because I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, there is a general, well, perhaps even a global crisis yeah, of, of, of that kind. Well, but on the other hand, it's quite sensible because it is a global crisis and it's probably as true of Islamic men as it is of me. So I wondered if you could comment on that. Well, I was going to make the point that you, you know, you've just started uh, to elaborate, which is, you know, as you talk, I'm thinking of, you know, an unemployed white man somewhere in the north of England where you know the industrial infrastructure is closed down the car building or shipbuilding has gone the mines have gone all that um, you know blue-collar work simply isn't there um, he's getting you know he's getting unemployment 
benefit, but that's being squeezed. He's being pushed out of a house because he's got more than one bedroom. I mean, how disgusting is all of this? Um, you know, what would you do if you were in his position? Mm. You know, and the London cosmopolitan elite still is concerned about there aren't enough women in high politics and running corporations. So both of those are, in fact, the case. Yeah. Um, you know, and I do think, I, I don't think you can blame feminism. You can't blame women for these problems. Of course, they're you know, much more profound. At the same time, there's something running globally around gender, and I think we'd be stupid of deny it. Yeah. You know, I think the issue is how we how we frame it and think it through in in particular well, places. The, the other argument, of course, yeah. if you don't mind, is yeah. it's always made about the politics, the not say the, the violent politics, the jihadist or suicide politics in the Middle East is that these are not the most impoverished people, if we've learned anything about mm, politics mm, in the mm. West and in the Middle East and probably everywhere else. The most impoverished are busy being poor. It takes a lot of time to survive as poor. And these are people with an education who perhaps do understand Western historical imperialist depredations in the region, the continuing power of, you know, the ongoing Western hegemony, and indeed feel there is no, no. Oh, I'm trying to think of a word. No direction or location for their energy and for mm, their mm, politics. Mm, so mm. I think it does come out of a certain frustration. I don't think it's just Wilhelm Reich rewritten <laughs> or re-understood. The, the mass you know. psychology of fascism, yes. where the swastika um, is people having sex. Yes. Yes, you know, so it's not simply kind yeah. of genital frustration, but you know, that that's there, but there's a but there's a massive political frustration. Sure. I mean, why is politics breaking out in this, you know, unplained in kind of inchoate way around the world? People are frustrated. People are not being heard. We have fewer vehicles. To, we've got more and more media. Yet it's harder and harder to be heard. Yeah. And people also do not have faith in representative government. They don't well, deem themselves represented. Indeed. Uh, it is very clear that this country, the UK and the US, are simply not functioning democracies. The vast amount of the working class sees no point in voting. Yes. The, the other argument, and this was made by Jody Dean in, at the conference in Dublin, that these, this is democracy. Right? This is actually the way democracy works. Right? Um, is it better if we have a wider range of parties? Of course. But still, what, you know, democracy invites us into formal elections on occasion. It's, it's to do with, all, again, yeah, the media were, environment. But people were in political parties in great numbers in this country after the Second World War. Yes, for sure. Yep. And they were profoundly involved in selection, pre-selection battles, in policy manifesto formulation and so on. And now they're not, and they don't vote. So yes, it's democracy, yeah. but it's not the only democracy we've had. No, indeed, and, and one of Thatcher's successes, I think, was undermining the dynamics of local politics, which in Britain had often been the place where people cut their teeth. You know, you became a councillor and then perhaps are recognised by the party. So, of course, there are all sorts of... Thank you. Could we get the check things going on, please? Yeah. Well, 
Annabelle, to, to finish off our conversation, I wanted to ask you about the future. Not surprisingly, not necessarily the Iranian future, but perhaps. We've just had this momentous election. We've had an administration voted in, if I can use US-style Argo, that to me looks like a fairly liberal administration by contrast with what's gone before. How is the West responding to that? How are people in Iran responding to that? And what is likely to come of it? I think to call this liberal is too optimistic and uh -huh. inaccurate. Uh -huh. Well, you're I... talking to me. Yes. <laughs> it's never going to be accurate. That much we can be sure of. Um, I, think, I think the important thing is that the Iranians who participated in huge numbers in this election have a degree of hope for reconciliation between Iran, which has been constructed and has played to being a pariah state on the global stage. They want to re-enter the global community, in quote marks. They want to negotiate the removal of sanctions. They want to have more open cultural relations with the rest of the world, including the West. Um, it's a moment, it's a bit like, you know, Nixon and China. Can Obama do it? Could Cameron do it? All the evidence is at the moment that it's going to be business as usual. That sadly, just recently, um, 40 plus American senators have signed up to um, a document which seems to have been written for them by APAC, the Israeli... American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Committee, yes, thank you. you know, probably the most powerful and wealthiest of the lobby groups in the US, again demanding that Iran abide by the, by the demands of the sanctions process. Uh, what I haven't said, and I think it's important for listeners to know, that, of course, Iran is a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty and everything that it's being asked to do under sanctions is actually beyond and out with the treaty, whereas, of course, Israel and Pakistan have never been signatories and their nuclear arsenals, you know, continue to sit there un unsurveyed and unwatched by us. So I think it is I'm a moment of opportunity there. for the West to approach Iran. The stronger always has to approach the weaker. It can never be the other way around. We have to be ready to let go of some of our psychological follies and demonizations and actually learn to talk. If we can talk to the Taliban, my goodness, we can certainly talk to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Well, Annabelle Srebeni, mm -hmm. thank you so much for these fantastic insights. As eloquent mm -hmm. and on the point as ever, brilliant analysis, much appreciated. And when you go, perhaps with me in your trailing wake, to Iran, wearing scarves and whatever you call upon me to wear in my little sailor boy <laughs> outfit, I hope that you'll come back to the pod mm -hmm. and grace us once more. Great fun, Toby. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it.